Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, those of you watching at home or in, hopefully you're not watching, I was always say watching at home or in your car. If you're watching in your car, stop right now. <laughs> Do not, just don't, get it later. Oh, we're so glad to see each and every one of you this morning. Um, we've mentioned it already today, but just to make sure we're kind of all in the same calendar. Are you aware of what day this is in our Christian calendar? Christmas, thank you for that. Good, right. For the rest of it, Palm, Palm Sunday. And so have, how many of you have heard a Palm Sunday message or a teaching or a lesson before? All right, so we don't really need to, we can just go have lunch now and get to the buffet first. Do they do buffets anymore? Is that appropriate? They do? You say unfortunately. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I don't know that they were a good idea before COVID, but yeah, after COVID, I'm, I get a little nervous about them. Um, but not everybody has the same level of, of you know, biblical familiarity. Not all of us, there's probably, and I hope there are some of us here today or listening or watching, um, that you don't know a whole lot about the Bible. We hope you're here and that, and don't let that intimidate you. We're all just on a journey of uh, learning from the Bible and studying it. It's our primary text that we look at, but we'll look at the events of Palm Sunday today. Um, it's included in all four gospels, so we'll look at that. But uh, maybe as a way to get you thinking in the direction we'll be studying today, I want to go back in your history a little bit. How many of you were ever, ever a child? <laughs> Some of you say still, yeah? Some of you didn't raise your hand, so you're a medical miracle. We appreciate you. you know, you're, you're Benjamin Button, you know, moving backwards in time. Um, but yeah, now, now, as far back as you can go, whatever your earliest memories were, at that age in your life, whatever that was, how much influence did you get over what kind of food you ate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Some of you say zero. Okay. How about when you were like elementary school aged in your house? At that point in your life, who decided what you got for breakfast or lunch or dinner where you grew up? Okay, mom, I heard mom and dad. I heard mom. Grandma, yourself. Okay. I mean, you could do a great lesson on generations here. It's like the, those of us, like in my generation, older are kind of like, yeah, mom or mom and dad eat it. And then the younger that they get, they're like, I decided. My parents asked me what I wanted, and I asked what my options were. You know, it's kind of like it changed over the years, right? Um, I... My parents, because they were smarter than we were as children, decided wisely that they should not allow their eight-year-old to decide what they ate, how much they ate, when they ate. They didn't let us make the grocery list. They didn't let us choose what we wanted for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. They didn't let us just snack on whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. They gave us some guidance. You know, if it was in the pantry, if it was in the refrigerator, if it was the right time, if we had already eaten growing or healthy food, we could have other kinds of food. But they didn't just let us eat whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, because they had this assumption. And the assumption they had was at that point in life, the adults knew better than the kids 
when it came to what they really needed. But the problem was that as a kid, I didn't know that I didn't know what I really needed. And so you drew these conclusions like, my parents are the worst parents in the world because I can't have Doritos for dinner. It's I know, right? This, this terrible prison that I live in. And so now as a parent, I'm now in this other role. And, you know, my wife teaches, you know, full-time in public school system. And so she leaves the house at 6.30 in the morning and she's home at 6.30 at night. So that means my boys have to negotiate with dad for breakfast. Dad makes their lunch that they take to school and dad makes dinner. And there's this part of me as a parent that says, no negotiating. It's going to be what I make. And you're going to eat it. You're going to like it. I'm going to decide what things go on the plate. I'm going to decide what variety of nutrition you get first. And if there's room left over, then you can have some of the other less nutritious things. This is my battle map. This is my aspiration. Um, and this is also the daily war that I fight every meal in our house. This is, yes, we're, we're having a moment. And there is part of me that just says, just be tough, just hold your guns. And I'm thinking, but my wife and I gave birth to kids even more stubborn than the two of us. And there are times they will just go down with the ship. Well, then no dinner for you, son. Fine. And it'll be like four days later and they'll be crawling on the ground. I'm like, okay, you can have Pringles if that's what's going to take. There are times... When we have this battle, and I'm like, I really don't want to make two different breakfasts, two different lunches, and two different dinners, but they're both picky, and they don't like the same thing. And if I ask them, what would you like for dinner, it would be, for one of them right now, it would be Pringles and hummus with milk to drink. Who does that to their child? Who wants to be in a room with them when they're breathing afterwards? It's just like not... And there's days where I'm like, no, we're going to have a more properly balanced meal first. No, I'm not eating it. And then I'm doing the math in my head. Okay, the meal probably is going to cost me X dollars to make. I'm going to make it. They're going to stare at it. I'm going to put it in the refrigerator. No one's going to touch it for two weeks. We're going to throw it out. Where is this all going? Also, right now we have peace in our house. If I die on this hill, not only is there no peace at dinner, I'm forfeiting three hours of peace. And then my wife's going to come home to unrest. And I'm just thinking, is this the day to fight this battle? Even though I know they need to eat some nutritional food at some point in their lives. And even though I know they don't like it and they don't think they need it, I operate on the assumption that I know better at knowing what they really need than they do. But, you know, there's just times where I'm like, you know, I don't want to risk and endure all of the fury that I will have to endure if we're going to die on the hill of carrot sticks today. To appease them and to make my life more peaceful, Pringles, hummus, and milk for everyone for dinner. Now, why do I tell that sordid story that probably only relates to John and Dee and myself and Kendra? It's because as a parent, we, those of us who are parents, or you've had parents, you can at least identify from their perspective, your parents, if they were 
trying to be good parents. I know not everybody's parents were, but your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, your uncle, your aunt, stepmom, stepdad, whoever helped raise you. They were probably, probably motivated, if they were good parents, trying to do the best by you, even if that made them unpopular at times. And they probably stuck to their guns on things that at that time you thought, they're just the worst parents ever. A shower every day, whether I need it or not. Yes! And if you come out and you don't pass the test, you're going back in there. My parents are so unreasonable. They're mean. Well, Johnny doesn't have to shower whenever he wants, and he can eat whatever he wants. Yeah, and he has no teeth. <laughs> he has a beard, and he's seven. Come on, like, like, he, he dipped, no. And then there's days as a parent where you're like, I don't want to do this, and then be called mean. So today, I'm giving in. Today, we've got to have peace today, so, you know, Hummus and Pringles and whatever. Shower when you feel, okay, no shower today. Dad, I think I saw lightning coming tomorrow, so we can't be in the shower when it's lightning. Fine, sleep in your own filth. We'll, we'll hazmat the whole room tomorrow, whatever. I appreciate now some of the unpopular stances my parents took when I was young because they really did know better than I did what I really needed. And they were willing to sacrifice their own comfort, their own level of peace and satiety in order to build into me and to take care of me. And love looks like being willing to put someone else's needs before your own. And they probably needed a lot more peaceful nights. They did not deserve their kids complaining about the things that they complained about, and yet they took that on in order to build into us healthy life habits so we could be functional adults. Now, if I'm a functional adult or not, it might be up for some debate, but I think they did, they, they did a pretty good job. The stuff, the stuff that's not functioning in my life is not on them. That's on me. But wouldn't you agree that we're not always mature enough to know what we really need the most? And we could be deeply convinced, here's what I really need. Here's what re we really need. And you're convinced. Why? Because you go deep down into your feelings and your thoughts. And you say, I'm living with one of two things. I'm living with a little bit less satisfaction, fulfillment in life, good esteem about myself, peace, I'm living with a little bit less than I think I should have. And if I could change this one thing, if I could just have this one thing or there's more of this, if I could just be in a, if I could just get married, if I could just be in a happier marriage, if I could just have children, or in some people's cases, if I could just get my children out of the house. Other people's cases, if I could just get married, other people's, if I could just get out of my marriage. If I could just have a different job, if I had enough money to retire, if I could have the amount Dave Ramsey says I need to have, then I can have peace. If I could just weigh what I weighed in high school, if I could just have the perfect skin, the perfect hair, I love, let me tell you where that prayer gets you. If I could just have that, then I'll have the amount of peace, satisfaction, blessedness in my own life 
that I feel like I should have. And I can't have it until I get it. And that is what I really need. I really need a healing. I really need a deliverance. I really need a new opportunity. I really need a financial breakthrough. I really need a, a thought change, a heart change. I really need to break free of this, that, or the other thing. Or you say, um, you know, rather than missing out on some of these things, you sing, I live with a little bit too much anxiety, a little bit too much worry, a little bit too much pressure or stress about finances, about family, about health, about work. And if I could just have those things taken away from me, then I can get to the real good life. Then I can really have peace. Then I can really be happy. That's what I really need. And the hard truth that the Bible shows us smack dab in the center of Palm Sunday is that we as human beings aren't always the most reliable sources for knowing what we really need the most. Do you realize you can need a whole lot of things and they're all valid, but you can't need them all the most? Did I lose you? There are lots of things in life that are important. They can't all be most important. Why? You can't have 10 things on a ranking system in the first place. Here's what it takes to be a mature disciple. You have to understand that the Bible at times will say something is more important than something else without making that something else totally unimportant. What, 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 Pastor, that's a, lot of, that's a word salad. What does that mean? For example, shelter, clothing, food, education, insurance, transportation. Those are basic life needs. Have I lost you? Do you agree with that? Basic life needs. Are those things important to your heavenly father for you to have those things? Yes, says the Bible, says Jesus himself. Why do you worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear? Isn't life more than food and isn't your body more than clothes? But think about for a second the birds of the air. They don't have jobs. They don't send the little birdlings to school. What do you call a baby bird? Okay. I don't know what just happened there. I've never used the word birdling. And that was not the Holy Spirit. I, okay. They don't send their little baby birds. I think birdling would actually be. Can, does anybody of you have a connection with Webster? That you could like just put that in the dictionary. They, they don't send their little birds to school. They don't work the fields. They can't sew clothes. They have none. They lack the opposable thumbs. They, have, they can do none of the things that we humans can do. And doesn't God feed them? Almost an endless buffet of food. He says, and why do you stress out about clothes? Look at the flowers and the grass of the field. Those flowers don't know how to make textiles. Those flowers can't go to Marshalls or Ross. They cannot do Amazon Prime. They can't sign up for any of these subscription clothes services that sends you clothes to your house and you send them all back. And yet... Not even Solomon, the wealthiest man who ever walked the face of the earth in all his glory, was as beautiful as those little flowers that Jesus says, 
are grass that get mowed in the lawnmower and turned into mulch tomorrow. And if God can clothe grass, don't you think he can also take care of you? He says, so don't obsess over those things. In other words, don't take those important things and elevate them to most important because he says that's what pagans do. They chase after those things. And your heavenly father knows you need them, says Jesus. He knows you have basic physical needs. He cares about your basic physical needs. He accounts for them. He, out of his love for us and out of the role he gives himself, he provides those things for people. But he says, seek first. He doesn't say seek only. Seek first God's kingdom which is something that changes on the inside and radiates to the outside. And seek his righteousness, being right and doing right according to God's all-seeing eye. And all these other things will be given to you as well. Why do you quote all that? Because you have to understand that God says there are things that are important, but there there are other things that are more important and one thing that's most important. That doesn't mean all these other things are unimportant. Please don't let any preacher ever tell you that God doesn't care about your physical needs. That God doesn't care about your mental health. That as long as you're saved, God cares about nothing else. That's not what the Bible says. It just says those things are important, but there is something even more important. And we have to learn that when God says something is most important, it doesn't mean these other things are automatically unimportant. Okay? If you've ever taken responsibility for another human being, you already deal with this. Vocationally, professionally, medically. There's lots of things that are important, but you have to triage at times. And there's some things that say, listen, you know, this person is injured. They've got a cut here. They've got a broken bone here, and they're bleeding from an artery up here. All those things are important. But if I don't take care of this, they're going to die before I can deal with that. Do you understand? Our Heavenly Father triages our needs. But we don't agree in the order he puts them in. And it leads us to deep frustration. There are people today that I know and probably you know. That have no relationship with God or Jesus. Because what they expect him to do he hasn't done. Or what they never expected him to do he has permitted. And their conclusion is then he can't possibly be the God that I need. And God's response is, the God that you think you need may not be the God you truly need. And the reason why that's not aligned is because we have a broken understanding of the triage of the basic needs of our heart. With that in mind, let's look at a group of people that maybe before today you couldn't relate to. But if we lived in this day and time, we would be right in the thick of this whole plot as it unfolds. In John chapter 12, let me read to you. One of the four accounts of Palm Sunday. In your Bible, you might have a statement above it that says the triumphal or the triumphant entry, which is interesting. Um, John didn't call it that. Matthew, Mark, or Luke didn't call it that. Um, Jesus didn't call it that. 
But looking back on it, we says, how triumphant. But I wonder if after we think about it for a few minutes, that's the most accurate description you would title this scene. Let's, let me just read the whole passage together. Then we'll walk through it one more time, looking at some of the details. And then we'll figure out, what do we, what do, we do with this? What's this saying to me today? Verse, verse uh, 12. The next day, the great crowd. I want you to just know as we read through this, you're going to see three groups of people in this scene. Two crowds, one group. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, does anybody know what festival they came to? Passover, okay, which was a celebration of uh, commemoration. They were supposed to look backwards and remember and retell the entire story of when the Israelites lived in what northern African country? Egypt. And their leader was Moses. And <laughs> Moises, I got to tell you a story. I was at a base, Moses. We were at a baseball card show yesterday, and Chase was looking at this line of autographed baseballs, and he got fixated on the wooden move. Moises Alou, he's like, "Does Mr. Moses know him?" I'm like, "Probably. He probably has pictures in his phone of him somewhere." But anyway, that was my Moses story. Egypt, Moses, first Passover. It was the tenth plague. God gave instruction that. They were supposed to set aside a perfect lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood, mark the posts of their door, and God was going to send an angel of death to kill the firstborn of any family who did not have their home protected by the perfect blood of an innocent lamb. And every year, the Jews were supposed to kind of recreate parts of that evening, retell the whole story so it stayed fresh in the minds of all of them that God, through the blood of a lamb, passed over us. They were supposed to remove all evidence of sin from the house in the form of leaven and dust, and it was a really rich ceremony. It was one of three feasts every year that Jews were expected to travel to the city of Jerusalem and celebrate the feast there. Now, not everybody could make it, financial reasons and otherwise, but uh, it was a pilgrimage they were expected to take as part of their faith. Um, in fact, even the liturgy of the Passover, if you look through the whole you know, you look through the whole, uh, if you can get your hands on I have one of the books in my office that walks through the whole script that they would follow for the Passover. One of the phrases they would say is next year in Jerusalem. It was very aspirational to go to Jerusalem. So when it says the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, we understand this group of people that we're about to read about were not people who lived in Jerusalem, but they had traveled from outside Jerusalem to Jerusalem for purposes of celebrating the Passover in the city. When that group, heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, and this is probably a familiar part, Hosanna. Anybody know what that means? Hosanna translated into literally means what? Save us now. Either save now or save us now. That's what it means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now they're quoting David from the Psalms. In other words, they're saying, this reminds us of something that was predicted in the Psalms that we're supposed to be watching for, and we get it. This is that. So don't think for a moment that these people didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. Here was the problem. The Messiah they thought they needed was not exactly the same as the Messiah who actually showed up. Okay, we'll keep going. Jesus found a young donkey. If you want the backstory, you can read the other Gospels. There's some good backstory on how that came about. 
We'll leave that for another day. And he sat on it as it is written. Now he's going to quote from, John's going to bring in Zechariah 9.9. Why did Jesus, why the donkey? Was he tired? Did he like donkey rides? Why a young donkey that could barely, that had never carried a human before? Why not a full-grown donkey that would be easier to ride? Well, because Jesus knew who he was. He knew what he was about. And he didn't divert to the left or the right. He's the guy you want to take to target with you. He knows what you really need. You go get it and you get out. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. This is from Zechariah. See, your king is coming. Now they would have, listen, this was, these were words of the prophets that these homes, these Jewish families would hold on to, that they would cling to for all these years of subjugation that they dealt with. And they knew when Messiah came, in their mind, he was going to set up, he was going to give them a new government, change the whole political system, they assumed he would be a military guy, a military conqueror, and they assumed that he was going to give him a whole new physical kingdom. Everything in life would look and feel and seem different. And so they got all these clues to watch for, and they knew this one from Zechariah. See, your king is coming. You recognize him. He'll be seated on a donkey's colt, a donkey lane, if you will. Verse 16. At first, if you want to find my key verse that describes my life in the New Testament, John 12, 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Could I tell you, that could describe a lot of my walk with Jesus. He's doing something, and I'm experiencing some things. I don't know that God's in it. It doesn't look like he's in it. But probably 80% of what I understand God does in my life, I see looking back over my shoulder. Oh, that's, God really was in that whole mess at the car dealership. God really was involved in this. God really was, I didn't see it at the time. You know, why did my car end up wrapped around a pole and I walk away from it? You know, like, like all these random things that you see. Only after Jesus was glorified did they look back over their life and say, oh, I've gained some new revelation today that helps me read my story backwards more accurately. Now I get it. All those things had to happen. That's what those prophets really meant about these things that had been done to him. Now we understand what's really going on in this random scene when we're coming into Jerusalem. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him, this is the second crowd now. There's a crowd in Jerusalem inside the gate who had traveled from out of the city to the city. They get word that Jesus is coming and that means something to them. Probably not to the regular inhabitants of Jerusalem because Jesus didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem up to this point in his life. He spent most of his time in another part of Israel. Do you know what part that was? The region of, starts with a G, Galilee. Don't get those two places confused. Galilee is not Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not Galilee. Jesus spent most of his life teaching healing ministry in Galilee. Those are the people who saw the miracles. Those are the people who heard the lessons. Those are the people who watched how he moved and operated. At times, the religious leaders from Jerusalem would get rumblings and they would travel down and inspect Jesus. But the city of Jerusalem as a whole probably didn't know a whole lot of, didn't have a whole lot of firsthand experience with Jesus. If they knew anything, it was what they heard second or third hand and they were hostile to Jesus because the, the reporters were the people who didn't like him. But then there's another group of people who were like from his hometown and from the region where he lived. They might have traveled to Jerusalem and weren't expecting Jesus to show up. When they hear he's coming, they're like, uh-oh, he's coming to Jerusalem? He doesn't hang out in Jerusalem much. This must be it. 
it's going down. And there's another group. This is the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead. These were people who two days earlier were witness to Jesus bringing a body back to life. You would call it a resurrection. I would call it a resuscitation. Potato, potato. Resuscitation is when you come back the way you were before. Resurrection is when you come back brand new. Okay. Jesus resurrect, was resurrected from the dead. Lazarus was resuscitated. He came back, same old body, and it died again, didn't it? Heaven's going to be a disappointment if you're resuscitated. I want to be resurrected. Okay. Raised from the dead. They continue to spread the word. This, you mean you, this guy on the donkey, listen, he can get it done. He can bring people back from the dead. What do you think he can do to the Romans? So they're spreading the word. Then there's one other little group of people over here. Uh, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him in verse 19. So the Pharisees, here they are. They see all this going on and they are disgusted. They're frustrated. And they're probably, there's a little bit of infighting here. It's almost like there's some finger pointing going on. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. By the whole world, they mean everybody on their street. Well, what were the Pharisees' motivations towards Jesus up to this point? What were they trying to do with Jesus up to this point? Kill him, they had talked about it, but hadn't really actually, I mean, they had hatched the plan for sure. I would agree with that. They had definitely, but they hadn't really moved forward. They were trying to discredit him. They were trying to isolate him. They were trying to quiet him. Jesus is forcing their hands, so they, he has to die. But, you know, it's depending on what calendar you use. It's Sunday or Monday. It's the, let's use the Jewish calendar. This day is the 10th of Nisan. Passover is the 14th of Nisan. What has to happen on Passover? Lamb has to be killed. It's the 10th. So you know what Jesus has to do? He kind of has to force their hand. It's like, listen, um, you need to kill me by Friday. I need to be dead. I'm the Passover lamb. The 10th of Nisan, if you study the Old Testament law, that's when you picked the lamb out of your flock, brought it inside, got attached to the lamb, inspected the lamb. You set aside the Passover lamb on the 10th. Why do you think Jesus knows to show up on the 10th? He's saying, you don't have to go pick me out. I'll show up. Here I am. You don't have to. to, Oh, man, that's another story. I can't tell that one. I need to write that down at some point. I actually observed when I was in Armenia the last time how they slaughter a lamb. I won't. What? Ugh. Here's the thing I can't forget about it. The whole time the lamb kept trying to escape. And it took three guys that had to keep. Ugh. And here Jesus just shows up. You know, turns himself in, as it were. See, they say, this is getting us nowhere. Whatever we've been doing is getting us nowhere. They love him. We're trying to discredit him. They love him. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This, at this point, really accelerates their plans to kill Jesus. So that's our text. Let's go back through it one more time. Verse 12. The next day. Well, we talked about where was he two days earlier? He was not inside the city of Jerusalem yet. He was outside the city, but he was close. He had been traveling from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And why do we say up? Well, because Jerusalem 
uh, topographically is about three to 5,000 feet above sea level, depending on where you are in the city. And it's, it's like on top of kind of a plateau. So no matter where you are in Israel, Jerusalem's always up. So he traveled from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And about two miles outside of Jerusalem, he stops off in the city of Bethany to visit two sisters and a brother that were close to him. We know the brother name was Lazarus. Do you remember his sister's name? Martha and Mary. He stops by their place. And oh, by the way, while he's there, he performs a miracle that people are eyewitness to. He brings back Lazarus from being clinically dead to being alive. And there's lots of people there that see it and they are astounded. They are blown away. So much so that two days later, when Jesus travels from Bethany into Jerusalem, they make the two-mile walk along. It's like his hype crowd. Like you watch someone. This is not the accurate scene, but I just think I've watched enough boxing in my life to like, you know, the boxer's coming in the ring and he's shadow boxing and everything else. And he's got all these people around him just telling him how great he is. And I realize that's probably a very sad misappropriation of this text. I don't mean to suggest because I don't see Jesus walk. Jesus was crying if you read the story from another. He was, he, was, he was weeping because they didn't get what he was. It's like you're the Messiah and they were right and they were wrong. Yes, he's the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that you want him to be. Just probably like a lot of us. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Awesome. What do you believe about him? Oh, he, you know, he can make my life better and he can give me this and he can give me that. He can. He can but if he doesn't, then will you doubt him? Does his identity depend on him being the genie that gives you everything that you want? If so, you'll distance him when he disappoints you. When he does something that you don't think is very Jesus-like. Or when he doesn't do something that he could do that he chooses not to do. Because rather than appease you, he's going to be obedient to his purpose of being a good dad. The dad you need, but maybe not the dad you think you need. Right? So a great crowd that had come from out of town, probably a lot of them from Judea and Galilee. These people had already gotten to town. Up until, we, have, we have no indication to believe that up until this moment, they are expecting Jesus to come. It says, when they heard that Jesus, the Jesus they knew before that day, when they heard he's coming, now they do something that's strange to us. And you've probably heard Palm branch sermons before, so I won't go too deep into it. Just know that palm branches and palm trees are a big deal in Israel. If you travel there, you'll be overwhelmed by how many palm trees you see. They are literally everywhere. Um, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. So now we get to see a little bit, what did the people who knew Jesus before this day, what do they think about him and what do they expect of him and what are they assuming he's up to when he arrives in Jerusalem? Well, here's the little thing you need to know about palm branches here. Um, without going into too much history at this point, there was no Jew alive at that point who knew what it was like, most likely, had any memories of what it was like to be in a free country. Since like 600-ish B.C., they had been under someone else's rule, whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians, or the Romans. They didn't know what it was like to be sovereign. They had been mistreated. They had been put down. And they held on to the promises that God would bring back the glory days of Israel and reestablish them again. They prayed for it every year. 
It's inside a lot of our biblical stories. When Zechariah gets the vision that he's going to have a kid, John the Baptist, it was his turn to go and make intercession on behalf of the people. And the priest's job in that moment was not to go to God and say, God, please give me a kid. It was their job to go to God and say, God, please send Messiah. They were looking and waiting. This crowd that knew him from back in Galilee, they knew what the scriptures were, had a pretty good idea, and they're thinking this guy checks off all the boxes. Why do they grab palm branches? Well, it's probably because it was a response based on an event in their history that we don't have in the Bible. It happened in what we call the intertestamental period, that two to 250 years in between the ending of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think it was around 165-ish uh, BC. I can do better than ish, but I can't remember right at the top of my head. I don't want to misquote myself. 165, there was an event in Israel, in Jerusalem, where there was a revolt. There was a civil uprising, a particularly successful one. You see, there was a Syrian, really evil, serious king, Syrian king by the name of Antiochus. He gave himself a nickname, Antiochus Epiphanes, which translated means God himself manifested on earth. He had a little bit of an ego issue. The Jews gave him a, a, a nickname, Antiochus Epimedes, which means the beast or the bad guy. So a lot of people who say that some of the revelation testimonies have been fulfilled look back to that and they say, hey, there was already a beast that stood in the temple, proclaimed himself as God because he did those things. Some brothers among the Jews, um, last name of Maccabees, banded together and said, "We've enough is enough. And they banded together and they decided we're going to lead a revolt and try and set the kingdom free again. And it was successful. And when word started spreading throughout the city and throughout the land that the Maccabean revolt was successful and that the king had been, you know, this dictator's leadership had been overthrown, the spontaneous celebration was that they cut down palm branches and started waving them because it was a successful revolt and they were free again. So the instinct that they have, having been retold this story, is that, you know what, maybe the new Maccabean, this Messiah is going to be even better than that guy. We're going to have another successful uprising. This is what it's going to be like. And they cut down palm branches to say, this is what we're hoping. We're hoping this is a pre-celebration for what we're going to experience because the Messiah has come to town. He is going to set us free from the Romans. He's going to give us a new government. We're going to have a new land. Things are going to be different around here. We're not going to be suppressed anymore. We're not going to be pushed down. He was a man of the common people. They didn't relate to the teachers of the law. They were upper class. A lot of them were in cahoots with the Romans. They were on their payroll. Or the Romans let those leaders lead so that they didn't have to deal with all the inner fightings among the Jews. And the commoners did not relate to the teachers of the law. They kept them at arm's length. The, 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 the religious teachers and the Pharisees had more money than the commoners did. And they related to Jesus. He was one of them. And they're like, he's going to make things right. So they take out the palm branches. They go out to meet him. And here's what they shout. Save us now. If you remember nothing else about Palm Sunday, I pray you can dial in for just a minute here. Save us now. Inside of that word Hosanna is the basic problem of the human heart when it comes to understanding Jesus. We use the word today in church, save us, salvation. I need to be saved. Now, when I say that today, 
when you think about that today, answer this question for me. From what do we need to be saved? Two things. Sin and death. Those are the two things we can't beat. We can't defeat what sin does and what it earns for us in our lives. We can't master it. It masters us. The second thing is death, eternal separation from God. We can't fix those two things. Death has final say, and sin runs rampant. It is a, it is a tyrant. It is a dictator. That's what goes on in our hearts, in our lives. That's what we produce. That's what we do. That's what we want. That's who we are. And when I ask Jesus to save me, I'm not asking him to change the quality of my marriage. I'm not asking him to save me from debt. I'm not asking to save me from bankruptcy. I'm not asking him to deliver me from bullies or people. I'm asking him to save me from sin and death. When those people in that day saw Jesus, they said, here's the one who can help us. Save us now. What do you think they thought they needed to be saved from? Romans, unrest, injustice, mistreatment. Now let me ask you a question. Is that such a bad thing for them to ask Jesus for? No. They're suffering. They're miserable. They're subjugated. They're being pressed down. They're being oppressed. And the more that you read and understand about the private lives, if you really want to get into that, you can read the book Killing Jesus. It's a fascinating historical study on all these Roman characters that we don't hear a lot about from the Bible. They were pedophiles and immoral and a type of evil. I was going to say Jeffrey Epstein level, but that wouldn't be appropriate. I just said it out loud instead of him. They were just that kind of evil, sordid. Listen, I can get on board with them saying, save us now. Here's another question I have for you. Let's make it theologically muddy, shall we? Did Jesus have the ability to save them from the Romans that day? Oh, yeah. Didn't Jesus himself tell Peter, I think, if I'm not mistaken, don't you think that I could give one word? And God would just send down an army of angels and nuke everything and set me free. Don't you think I have that type of power that I'm restraining right now? Now let me phrase this in a way that might seem a little more relatable to you. Haven't you ever been in a position in life where you've looked at something in your life that's just really wrong, that's just really evil, that is really unfair, and said, God, If you could do something about this, why haven't you? If you're a good God, why did my baby die? Why did he leave me? Why did she get raped? Why did this? Why did my kid get bullied? Why did why do you let these dictators in these countries run roughshod over people? Why are there kids starving? If you have the power to do it, why don't you? I know people today who will not come to relationship with God because these questions are unanswered in their life. When either God could have done something and he didn't, or he did allow something that they couldn't compute, they conclude not the Messiah. 
not the Messiah. You see, they saw him coming through the gates and they started quoting the scriptures. They said, this is the Messiah, this is the king. And they were right and they were wrong. Save us now. And I believe, I'm going to hypothesize, I believe if Jesus could have given a response to that, he could have said this and been right. I'm about to. But what they would have interpreted that as would have been wrong. And then in two or three or four days, when he didn't do what they expected him to do, they spit him out and distanced themselves. Then obviously he's not the Messiah. No, he was. It's just he didn't fit into the box you wanted your Jesus to be for you. And the only reason why I can come up with, and it's not satisfying, and full, but it's also fully satisfying, is that when Jesus does not act as I think that he should, or he does act in a way that I don't think that he should, the only reason why is because he knows better than I do. And quite candidly, the only time you need someone to defend their actions is when you distrust their character. If I trust someone's character, I don't need an explanation for what they do. I just trust them. But when I'm not sure, I need an explanation. I want to go to a place in God where I say, you know what, God, I am human, I am finite, and I'm looking through my lens right now. I'm one of the disciples. I, you could absolutely... Could you understand the conundrum these people are in? They're saying, this man says he loves us. He preaches love. He sees how we live and he could do something about it. And here he comes and we think it's time to do something about it. And he doesn't do anything about it. He never loved us. He saw what we lived in and did nothing about it. He's thinking, I did everything about it. He saw what I really lived in and didn't give me what I needed. And he's saying, I saw what you live in and I gave you exactly what you needed. And he wept. He said, I want to gather you. But you're looking for a kind of peace that I didn't come to bring today. Hosanna, save us now. They were asking Jesus for something he was going to give them that was important, but it wasn't most important. He would give them and will give them all the things they hoped that he'd bring, but not now. I wonder if that's a hang up you have too. You're asking Jesus and you wait on him for things he promised to give you, but when it doesn't come on your timeline, you conclude he's not the Messiah anymore. Just things to think about. Reading ourselves into the crowd where sometimes we might think, I don't have a whole lot to identify with those poor, uninformed, ignorant Jewish people waiting there. No, um, we're very much like that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Why is that important? Because those weren't their words they just wrote that morning. They're quoting from David who said here's a song that he wrote that describes a future Messiah and the fact that they say those words and attach them to Jesus means they're drawing some right conclusions here this is not just the man from Galilee he's the Messiah he's the king and they were right and they were wrong he is the king but they wanted an actual physical king that would sit on a throne in Jerusalem and lead a political government. Which he will do, but not yet. Because that wasn't what was most important. Because if he went and sat on a throne and did not go to the cross, you and I aren't here with any hope today. 
And that's what we need most. That is most important. Other things are important. Your physical body, your emotional health, all those things are important. But what's most important is the, the healing that we need, the redemption we need to deal with our sin and death. We need that dealt with first. You can have everything else and not have that because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Because if you have all those things, it might mask the God-given hunger you need to come to him in spiritual poverty because you'll incorrectly think I've got it all when really you have nothing. I'll keep going and stop talking in allegories. Here we go. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. We talked about this already. As it's written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Why does Jesus do this here? couple reasons. Number one, he was very aware that he needed to fulfill his job, his marching orders from God were to fulfill all of the promises made by the prophets. Zechariah 9.9 said, the way you can recognize your king that your king will not come riding the your king will not show up in Jerusalem the first time riding on a white horse he will not come with a military escort he'll come riding on a little baby donkey and it probably looked comical he would not you know a a little donkey a, a donkey's colt is not one that's normally ridden by human beings Jesus's feet he wouldn't have been able to straddle the donkey he would have had to sit with his feet hanging over the side probably dragging on the ground it was not he did not look intimidating he did not look like a general coming into town. He came as a common business traveler. Back in, the, back in the day, if a visiting leader came to a foreign town, you knew what his intentions were by what he rode into town. If he, brought, if he rode in on a donkey, he came in peace. If he rode in on a horse with a military escort, he came to make war. They all knew that. Now, if you've read the end of the book of the Bible... Jesus is going to come back a second time to Jerusalem. Do you happen to remember what he'll be riding that time? A white horse. Because the first time he came to make peace, the second time he comes to make war. About who or about what? Hang on, we'll get there. Okay. So he, he's understanding. The, the other reason why is he's, this is a dead giveaway to anybody who was in the know that knew scriptures. Jesus is showing them right up front. He's pretty much peeling the mask back where up to this point he's, He's been hesitant his first couple years in ministry to start calling himself. You know, he doesn't go around saying, hey, by the way, I am the Messiah. Just, you know, hand out business card with just the Messiah written on it, just handing them out, telling everybody. In fact, sometimes he tells people around him, like, listen, you're trying to push me to the front. It's not time for me to be full. Because the moment that I go full public, I'm going to die pretty soon because this, the people can't handle it. So I need to hold back until the, until the end when it's time. Then I'm going full-blown Messiah. Because at that point, it'll accelerate things in my death. I can't die before it's time to die. So all the people are like, yep, this is the guy. Another box he checks off. Then verse 16. At first, we already talked about this. His disciples didn't understand. His disciples see all this going on. This is not what they're expecting. This is not the normal protocol for when he rides, he comes into town. He asks them to go get him a donkey. For, you know, don't ask a whole lot of questions. Just go see Larry. He'll tell you, I've got this. Go get a room over there. You know, all these things are going to be lined up. If you read the story, there's all kinds of fun details that Jesus puts together. He puts his fingerprints all over the Passover preparations. It's just like little ways to nod to his disciples, like all these special Jesus touches that he puts on it. They don't get it all. They don't understand it. They're just like, I see a whole bunch of stuff going on right now, and it's a bunch of events. They're unusual. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but later they would. I wonder if that's typical of your life. 
if you've had those kinds of experiences. Yesterday, a friend of ours um, shared a, an experience with us. There's a friend of ours. He's not here this morning. He's traveling today, but he's part of this faith community, and he's a close family friend of ours and goes on road trips with Chase and I, and sometimes just two of us go on a road trip. And end of last year, we had gone on just a short day trip, and uh, he came over to my house. I, I drove. He came over to his house and part, leaves his car at my house, and then we go where we need to go and come back and get his car. And I noticed it was a really warm day and humid, and he showed up like windows, you know, windows rolled down, and I'm just like, he got out of the car, and I was just joking, and I was like, dude, like, heard of air conditioning? Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, it's just hot air blowing through your car. He goes, yeah, you know, my air conditioning is not working. I'm like, brother, you need to get that, like, fixed ASAP. Like, you can't, this is Baltimore. You can't, why? He's like, well, I did. He's like, I took it down to the, sh- to the dealership, which I'm just like, warning bell always goes. I, some of you work at dealerships. I love dealerships. <laughs> But I'm like, I'm like, oh, man, that was your first mistake. He's like, I took it to the dealership, and they said they could fix it. And I was kind of excited. And then they told me it was going to be $1,800. And I was like, oh, man, it's going to wipe out my whole checking account. But, the, but I was ready to pull the trigger. But then they said, but it's going to take all day. And I'm like, I, I can't just sit here all day. So, like, I took the car home, and now I'm just dreading going back. Like, I just, I'm just trying to deal with it. It's going to be winter soon, trying to deal with it. I'm like, okay. Then this February, we went on a, another road trip, and he dropped the car off, and he said, hey, man, I just found out I'm going to be, I was not expecting to get a tax refund this year, but I'm getting a pretty nice tax refund, and so I've decided I'm going to get my air conditioning fixed. I'm like, well, it is February, so you probably need it, you know. Um, he's like, no, so like next Friday, you know, uh, I'm going to take the day off from work. Could you pick me up at the at, he's like, I'm not. T-, he said, well, do you have any recommendations? I said, well, first of all, don't take it to the dealership. Take it to the guys that I use. Uh, so they're really, really good guys. They're straight up guys. I've taken my car to them for the last ten years, and they're just, they're just, they're awesome. So a lot of integrity. I trust them really a lot. He said, okay. Next Friday, he, uh, I pick him up at the, at the at the repair place, and we're heading up the road. He's like, yep, I dropped it off to them today. I, my my tax refund is just enough paid off. He's like, I was really hoping to be able to use that money to do some other things, but it's just enough, so I'm going to get the air conditioning fixed. $1,800 is going to be all good. So we drive to where we're going, and he gets a phone call from the repair shop, and I always get nervous about those. It's like, you know, like, is this going to make my day or ruin my day? And he steps out from where we were, and he comes back inside. He's like, you're not going to believe this. He's like, well, try me. What, what else broke? He's like, no. He's like, you know, your, your mechanic that you recommended got in and saw what the problem was, and he looked up the VIN number on my car, and he made a call to Honda Turns out, I didn't even think of this, my car is still under full warranty for that part. And he said, so they're going to put it all back together. And he's like, you know, it's going to be a $25 charge for labor. But he already called the dealership and set up an appointment. I can take the car and drop it off. I can get the whole thing repaired. And I get to keep the tax refund and use it for something else. And so that was February. Yesterday, we went on another uh, road trip. I said, hey, man, did you ever get the air conditioning fixed? He's like, I just got it done yesterday. He's like, it's like, this is just wild. Here's what he says. I was so frustrated when I first went to the dealership that they couldn't, I said, he said, I was ready to pull the trigger that day, but something about that just didn't sit right. That I didn't understand at the time. I had no idea. I'm not handy. I don't understand all these different things. He's like, but now I look back over my shoulder and all these delays. He's like, I've lived without air conditioning for all these months, but I feel like He's like, I, I hate it, like, oh, God gave me a this or God gave me a that. Or, he's like, I just really feel like God's hand was in all of this, just guiding my details. He's like, I didn't understand it all along the way, but now I look back and I'm like, wouldn't it be just like God? 
to understand something I didn't understand, to withhold from me the opportunity to get some of these things done, all to just turn around and give me this huge, you know, just this huge, you know, in his words, just a huge blessing. I've had a lot of experiences like that where it's like, I have no idea what's going on. This is just a frustration. I'm, even, I'm not even looking at it spiritually. It's just some of the stuff in life you deal with. And you hit roadblocks or things happen sideways. And then you have this moment, you're like, wow. I didn't understand that all what was happening, but now I see. You're welcome. You're, hey, hey, you're welcome. I'm here. I'm here. Uh, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize they got new information later on that helped them process things backwards in their life and say, see, God's hand really was with us in that moment. Let's, let's, let's speed on. I need, to, I, need to, I need to get on with this. People are on the walkie-talkie. The kids are running crazy back there. We need to end the message. Now, that the crowd, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the dead continued to spread the word. So now we see there's another crowd that came in through the gates with him. Oh, real quick, could you put that picture up? Um, I went to Israel, and uh, this is one of the gates that he would have entered through. It was one of two, the one that he actually went through wasn't open, um, but this one was. It was near it. Just, these are not wide gates, and the only way you get into the city of Jerusalem is you have to go through one of the gates. And interestingly enough, there are wide gates, and there are narrow gates. And you can see that meant a whole lot. When you actually go there and you look at it like, oh, that's what he meant. Like, you get a better Bible when you come home. You're just like, so that was my experience. I entered the city of Jerusalem through one of those gates. That's how, even to this day, because they put walls around it to keep it safe. And so, you know, he would have had to come through a gate to actually enter into the city. And so just giving you an idea, it's narrow. Um, and you can barely get one car through there going one way. They did I have a video of it too. Just, I was just fascinated by all of it. And then about... About the end of where you can see was the pool of Bethsaida, if you can remember that from one of the stories. So everything's kind of compact and close in there, but uh, I will avoid my inner nerdery and leave that where it is. But uh, a group came with him through there who were already like his, like telling everybody about what he had done. And then you have a people on the other side of that that are waving palm branches and throwing down their coats saying, save us now. They put two and two together and gotten four and three quarters. He is the Messiah. He is the king. He can save them. He can save them now, and he was going to, but he was going to deal with their, he was going to save them from sin and death first and deal with the Romans later. He was going to set up for them a spiritual kingdom now and deal with the physical kingdom later. He was going to show his military power to wipe out our enemies and sin forever later, but he was going to first come and make peace and make it possible for people to have grace before that he brought judgment. And that wasn't what they thought they needed. And because he wasn't what they wanted when they wanted it, they could not embrace him as Messiah. And I wonder if you're waiting on Jesus to fit into what you really want and need him to be before you really embrace him, or if you can come to a place and say, he loves me enough to risk hostility from me, to avoid appeasing me, to be for me what I truly need and not just what I think I need. So, um, with all, and then the Pharisees had this conversation with themselves, uh, these things aren't working out well and we need to, ex you know, we need to accelerate our efforts here. So what Jesus was really doing is he's forcing their hands so they start moving quickly. I've got to close. Let me just give you a couple takeaways. My big idea this time through, the next time I go through, I'm sure I'll see something else, was 
I've said it a number of different times this morning, but the Jesus we need, we really need, may differ from the Jesus we want. You could say it a different way. The Jesus I truly need may differ from the Jesus I think I need. And I hope I've illustrated enough to you this day of how that can happen. We sometimes overestimate our ability to detect what we really need. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts aren't the most reliable informant. Jesus tells us that the heart is, uh, you know, it's subject to our own feelings and thoughts, and it's subject to being corrupted. And so sometimes we just think we need something, or what we say is most important is not really what's most important in God's eyes. And when those things are out of alignment, we make false conclusions about Jesus. We set up expectations for him that he can't possibly, um, that he can't possibly maintain. And so I, I hope that I've helped that idea to soak in some. I, I have to keep traveling this morning. Let me just give you the reasons why I formed this. I'm looking at this people and saying what they wanted and who Jesus was. They wanted a Jesus. They wanted a Messiah to save them from the Romans. And we've covered. He can. He had the ability to, and he chose not to because he came to save them from sin and death. Quick history lesson. I want you to know this. It was a valid understandable, important desire that they had to be saved from the Romans. Can you just consider Israel's history for a second? Started with Abraham hanging out in Canaan because of a famine. He ended up having to relocate his whole family to Egypt. All 70 of Israel's lineage that was alive at that time moved to Egypt. But a few generations later, they had grown to over a million people. And Pharaoh said, this is a problem. These Hebrews are going to overthrow us, and so we need to force them into slavery. Well, that didn't sit well either. It was horrible and abusive, and so God raised up Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and said, I've got a new geography for you. Moses didn't get them all the way to the promised land, but a young man named, do you remember who got him there? Joshua got him there. And in that season of their history, they had to make a big transition. You see, the people that were living at that point knew how to be slaves, and they knew how to be wanderers. They didn't know how to be settlers yet. And wanderers, you don't put up permanent homes. You don't farm the land. You gather because you're not planning on staying there. But when you're a settler, things change. And when they moved into Israel and they got their new home, they were free. But here's my question. Did, did they get to go just build their house wherever they wanted to? No. How did they figure out where they would, where in Israel they would live? How did that get divvied up? Tribes. If you want to fall asleep to the book of Numbers, now you understand what's going on in there, right? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all this. They're starting to set up for them, and then Joshua judges. They get into more of the land division. Um, yeah, they went where their tribe was assigned to go. And what happened is that pretty soon they stopped identifying most as a nation and more as individual tribes or states. And that's this whole history period of the judges. When each individual tribe had their strengths and their weaknesses, some were stronger than others, in Judges is about how these individual tribes dealt with outside enemies. And sometimes the tribes would band together and collaborate, but they really weren't working as one functional unit. They were a bunch of states, and they came to two conclusions in the book of Judges. The people finally said, number one, um, we need to work together more. That would be helpful. Secondly, we really need a king. And they told the prophet, the last judge and the first prophet, Samuel, they said, you know, could you go to God for us and just put in a request? We need a king. Samuel goes to God. God, the people say they need a king. God told Samuel, go tell the people they have one. His name is me. Samuel goes back to the people. You have a king already. You have the king of kings. 
We want a physical king that we can see like all the other nations have. We want one of them. Go tell God that's what we want. Samuel goes back to God. God, they're insistent that they want a king. God says they need to be careful what they ask for because they might just get it. They think they know what they need, that they don't really need that. Because guess what? If I give them a king, here's what they're not expecting. They're not expecting taxes, but those are going to come because kings, kings like to go to war. Kings like to live in good conditions. And where are they going to get the money? From people's taxes. They're not going to be excited about that. Secondly, the kings can take all these people's little baby girls and put them in their harem. Thirdly, they can send all their little baby boys out to war. Well, that's what we want. We want a king. Okay, the king you want, a king you shall have. So we enter this period of their history called, ironically enough, kings. And probably the high point of that was under David. Saul, then David, that was the, that was the glory days. They built a temple, or they got ready to build a temple, and Solomon finished it. That was kind of the high point. That was the glory days. That's what the people in Jesus' day, they wanted to see all that again. They'd only heard about that. Because pretty soon after the kings, I mean, we got, you didn't, didn't take too long to figure out the kings were going to be a problem. Saul had problems, David had problems, Solomon had problems, and it just went south after that. There's civil war. Israel was no longer one country, then it split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. They each had their own kings. Northern kingdom were really, really bad. Southern kingdom a little less bad. Then other outside empires came in and ran over them. The Assyrians, right, came in, defeated the northern kingdom, and then the Babylonians came in and defeated the northern and the southern kingdom, carried off all the Israelites that, that were worth rehabbing. They took them in captivity into their uh, country of Iraq, especially, you know, the four you might remember, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? But after a little while, then another empire came in. The Persians came in, overthrew that empire, and they said, you know what? Nehemiah, take some people back. Go ahead and rebuild. Things went okay for a little while until another empire came and overthrew them. You know, Alexander the Very Good and his people came in. You know, I think 322, the Greeks came in, overthrew them. Do you understand, like Israel, it had been almost a thousand years since they were a free country. Conquered over and over and over again. You had this little window of time, I think 165 B.C., when the Maccabean Revolt happened. They had a few years, and then, uh, what was it, 65 B.C., the Romans came through. And from 65 B.C. until 30 B.C. or 32, depending on which calendar you use, you have 95-ish years where they had been under the Romans at the time this story happens. They were tired of it. It's been 100 years. Nobody living at that time knew what it was like to be free. Can you blame them? And here's what they're thinking, though. If we can just be free, then we'll be good. We can enjoy the good life. And Jesus said, I agree, but I disagree. Yeah, the Romans are bad, but sin and death is worse. I need to deal with sin and death first. Then we'll deal with the Romans. Or in their case, the Romans would deal with them. Uh, but we got to move on. Number two. They wanted a military conqueror. But Jesus came the first time as a peaceful king. We talked about this a little bit. They knew the Messiah. And they knew he was coming in all the language. He's coming. Jesus said, I'm coming to establish a new kingdom. One of his favorite topics, pretty much his primary topic, was I'm going to establish a kingdom. And in their brain, they're thinking, absolutely, a kingdom. And he's thinking, no, a, a kingdom. Right? And they're thinking, well, the only way we're going to see that is through a fight. Because the Romans are not just going to back down if we ask real nice. We're going to have to fight them. And so we're going to have to rally around somebody around here who's got a good military background. This joker can walk on water. 
He can bring back people from death to life, and if he can move them from death to life, he surely can move them from life to death. He's the guy. And several times in Jesus' ministry, in fact, there's one moment earlier on in his ministry where Jesus determined the crowds were really getting amped up around him, and he sensed that they were getting ready to take him that day by force and make him king. And Jesus said to his disciples, you got to get me out of here right now. This is unstable. My time has not, it's not time for all that. They wanted their Messiah to come and deal with all the people who had treated them wrong, all of the injustice, all of the evil, and wipe it all off the face of the earth, and they knew he could do it. But Jesus didn't come the first time to make war. He came the first time to make peace. Not peace between Israel and the Romans. Peace between God the Father and humans. And peace between brothers and sisters. But that's not what they were looking for, but that's what they really needed because you also might be in that same mentality. Dear Jesus, please just rid my life of all my enemies. Just deal with all of them. Deal with all of them today. Deal with my mother-in-law, my son-in-law. I love my mother-in-law. Just deal, deal with all of them. Deal with my bad boss. Deal with the people who have done me wrong, the people who hurt me, who hurt my family, who are hurting themselves. Just rid them all. And when he doesn't do it, you say, how does God let them get away with it? You, first of all, you're saying, save us now. You're like, I want him to deal with that now. And God is saying, I will deal with it. But not right now. I want you to deal with people's issues now. No, you don't. Because then you have to lump yourself into that. Do you want immediate judgment from God every time you mess up? No, I, I want peace. I want grace. Before God brought judgment, he brought an opportunity for peace first. If he killed all the Romans that day, what happens to the centurion who stands in front of the cross four days later and watches history unfold, looks into the facts, the facts look into him, and he comes to the conclusion, he's innocent. He really is the son of God, and it says, and he worshiped God. If Jesus is what they want him to be, that guy goes to hell. But Jesus came first to make peace. I don't know why people do evil things. I'm walking with some people through some diabolical stuff that's happening against their family at the hands of people. I don't have a satisfying answer to why doesn't God step in and stop it. But all I know is that we all agree, as hard as it feels, there's a part of our heart that says, but the person and the people who are masterminding all this evil are on their way to hell unless they have a change of mind and we need to pray over them too, that they come to their senses and find grace and peace because judgment is coming. Because guess what? The second time that Jesus comes, he comes on a horse to make war, not against people, but against Satan and all, all the powers of evil. He will wipe them out forever. I don't know about you, but I, I want to have Jesus come riding on a donkey to me. I don't want to see him coming at me with a white horse. I want you to understand just because you don't always see evil in life punished right away does not mean that Jesus doesn't think it's important. But what's most important is that he first came to make peace so that we could have an opportunity to be on the right side of the judgment and the war when it does come. Amen? Last one. Jesus, they, they wanted Jesus to give them a physical kingdom. Something they could see, they could touch, they could interact with. They could spend. 
they could live in, they could eat at, they could walk around in. And he came to bring him a kingdom, but he wanted to establish first a spiritual kingdom. And his kingdom, he was very clear, it's not one that has walls and gates. It has walls and gates. It's not one that, that's here, it's here. Jesus' kingdom is established inside of his kids. It's a change that happens inside of our hearts and our minds. It's a whole new way of thinking and living and behaving that changes inside of us and it radiates outside. That's not what they were hoping he would do. That wasn't on their radar. They didn't think that was their deepest need. They thought their deepest need, the reason why I'm not living the perfect life is because we don't have our kingdom back. It's been a thousand years of this mess. And what's robbing us of happiness, joy, and peace is we don't have that. And Jesus knew, I could give you a brand new king. Look back in your history. Every time you got in trouble and I bailed you out, your life was good for a couple days and you went back. It did nothing to your heart. Their whole history. Well, if God would just, you know, put $10,000 in my mailbox and give me a new job and this and that and the other thing and I drop 40 pounds tomorrow, then I'll be happy. No, you'll be miserable about something else. What will really make you miserable is when you have those things that you still find misery. Because you thought that would be your savior and it didn't deliver what you thought it would. What does it gain you to have everything in life and lose your soul? And yet, Jesus says a physical kingdom is important, but not now. Now, spiritual is what's most important. So my question for you is simply this. What savior do you really need? Do you need someone that appeases you and gives in to everything that you think that you want? Or do you need someone that's going to deal with the sin and death? issues in your life and that can teach you to learn to be content with whatever you have such that all the unnecessary anxiety, worry, and pressure that you put on yourself because of these unmet expectations gets put in its place and you can still go to God and appeal to him for all the things in life that your heart desires but you can put them in right priority order like Hannah did in the Old Testament And she wanted a child so badly that she developed an eating disorder because she didn't have it. She had a dysfunctional marriage because of it. She was missing out socially because of it. And all of those years, she was praying for a child, which is a good thing. But really, at the end of the day, she needed a child to feel some kind of a way about herself. And she finally came to that place where she could could go and pray to the Lord and get to the place where where she said, I no longer want to have a child for me. If I have a child, I want to have that child for you, Lord. And when she left after that prayer, she wiped her tears and immediately her eating disorder left. She could go back to eating. The next day she went and worshiped with her family. Hadn't had the kid yet, but put it in right priority order. Because she came to a place where she's like, the God that I really need is the God that I really have. And I don't have to say that these other things are unimportant. But I put them in proper relationship to the most important things in my life. And those things are resolved. Therefore, I can tackle these other things with maturity, dignity, and grace without forfeiting my peace. That's the king that I need. Let's pray. Worship team, will you come? Do you need Jesus to enter into the gate of your heart today? Is that what you really need? Friends, you might think that you need salvation to try and cope with the things in life that you don't have that you do want. Or perhaps as a gateway to the things in life that you do have that you don't want just to be able to get rid of them. But I'm not advertising Jesus as some sort of fix-all remedy that... He's going to take your Amazon wish list and deliver it to you by tomorrow. 
that he will deal, and he's the only one who can deal with the things that really are the root of all your unrest, of all your muted happiness and dissatisfaction and joy. Those things are a result of sin in our heart because we know we don't meet God's standard, and we know we're broken, and we know we're flawed. And we think that if we can just fill in the blanks or cut off the excess unwanted parts of our life that we'll get to this place of perfectness. And it doesn't work like that. Only Jesus can satisfy that and deal with that. Forgive your sin forever. Give you a purpose and identity and a hope that are durable. The ability to live a contented life, whether you have a lot, a little, or in the middle. And the way you receive that free gift is by just confessing to him that you want that free gift of salvation. That's the save me now prayer he loves to answer. All you have to do is believe and repent. Believe you need to be saved. Believe he can save you. Believe he will save you if you ask. And turn away from, retire from being your own emperor and invite the king to be your leader. Live his way, not your way. And if that's what you believe and that's what you're ready to do, then all you do is you confess that to him. You just tell that to him right now. Use your own word to tell him that and he'll save you right here, right now, forever. Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry for sinning. I believe in you, Jesus. Believe in your life, in your death, in your resurrection. Come live inside of me. And I step aside from leading my way. And I surrender to your leadership. Thank you for saving me. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.